our sermon is, as I said, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I'll read it, and then we'll get going. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, suffered a shipwreck in their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so they will be taught not to blaspheme. These are the last few verses of chapter 1 before we get into chapter 2 next week. It is, when I was calling it earlier, it is three small verses. A lot of people overlook verses like this just because it's almost transitionary from last week in the doctrine of grace, next week the importance of prayer. But when you dig into it, you understand the depth that is within there. That's the beautiful thing about Scripture. I love books. I love reading books. But the scriptures can do in three verses what Tolkien couldn't do in three books. As we start in verse 18, Paul's entrusting of Timothy. The Greek there actually means to deposit. He is depositing his knowledge. He's depositing the gospel. Not just the gospel, but the mission and how he does his mission work. Paul was the greatest church planner in history. He was the most intelligent, prolific theologian and apologist at that time. So that, and I like the ESV version of this better, he is entrusting it in accordance with the prophecies so that Timothy can wage the good warfare. The Greek translates more accurately into war and warfare. Paul is, in essence, equipping his disciple to go out and fight the fight after Paul is gone. We know that 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter before he meets his end and is glorified. And in these words here in verse 18, Paul gives us what it looks like to be a discipler. What it looks like to pour into someone. Paul met Timothy in Lystra, and we can read about that in Acts 16. He was a young man in his teens. His mother was a convert. His grandmother was a convert. His dad was Greek. He was an unbeliever. And he poured into this young man for 15 years, into his mid-30s, which is where First and Second Timothy were written in uh, Timothy's mid-30s. He did not do a three-hour class at a church to learn how to text somebody once a week and ask how they're doing. He didn't sit down with Timothy for two hours every other week and talk about sports ball and then a little bit of the gospel. He poured into Timothy. He brought Timothy along with him in his life. Timothy traveled with Paul throughout the Middle East. He learned Paul's way of teaching, his way of eating, his way of sleeping. He, much as the apostles did with Christ, everything Paul did, Timothy did. And through that, 
I'm sure there were messy times, but through that came a bond, a love for each other, a respect for each other, and a desire for Timothy to emulate Paul. This is why Paul is at the summation of his life, seeing the end near, is entrusting these things to Timothy because of a lifelong discipleship. Paul Washer describes discipleship as tedious, as painful, as uncomfortable. Jeff Vanderstelt calls it messy, awkward, and not easy. Discipleship is not about superficial. It's about digging in and being part of someone's life. It's, if you want to look at it another way, when you're discipling somebody, truly discipling them, you're adopting them into your life. And they're adopting them, you, into their lives. They're allowing you to see the worst of themselves so that you can come alongside them and show them scripture and walk with them in a godly way and teach them how to be more godly. And vice versa, as time goes on, like I have done with people I've discipled who've discipled me, sometimes the discipler becomes the disciplee as the disciple grows. These are important things to understand, not just as a church or an individual, but as a mother and as a father. Our first mission field is our home. It is our children. That's the first place you're going to be with somebody most of the day. You're going to see ugly things. You're going to see pretty things. You're going to have awkward, uncomfortable situations and conversations. But at the end of the day, God has entrusted parents with the children so that we can trust them with the gospel and then they can further the mission and take it to the rest of the world. This is not something that is flippantly done. If God has given us children, he has given us that frightening, beautiful duty to raise them up in the way they should go. And it is our first ministry. As Vody Bauckham put it quite bluntly, with regards to children and discipleship, especially for the fathers. Because of Adam's headship, children got their original sin through their father from Adam. Because man is the head of the family, Adam was the head of humanity. So it falls upon the fathers, first and foremost, to disciple their children as they are discipling their wives, as they are living their lives with each other. So it's of utmost importance to disciple what God has given us. Verse 19 says, Keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, suffered a shipwreck in regards to their faith. The word for shipwreck here in Greek is shipwreck. Very simple, very literal. I love Paul. He goes from metaphorical use to just plain, this is what it means. In our language, in our vernacular, we would call that apostasy. MacArthur says apostasy comes from anyone who has gone and been a part of the body proper, who has fellowshiped with believers, who has heard, practiced, and maybe even taught the truth of the gospel, and then walked away in favor of a false doctrine. 
we can say and name churches that are apostate churches, but it happens with the people first. Paul is admonishing Timothy throughout the first chapter to be wary of apostates because they will infect a church. And then he goes and he calls out people by name, which is just blasphemous. I mean, oh my goodness, how dare he put people on blast and call out their names. Western church has really adopted the 11th commandment, which is thou shalt be nice. The other 10 don't matter. So looking at this, I have had friends of mine in the past who will refute calling false teachers out and refute this verse right here. They'll refute 2 Timothy 2 when Hymenaeus pops up again with Philetus. They'll refute, um, they'll refute Christ calling out the Pharisees because we have to be loving. Yes, we do have to be loving. But the first thing we do is we have to love the church. We have to love the people within the church. And honestly, we have to love the apostates enough to understand that where they are, they may have been misled. And we have to love them enough to speak the truth into their life. We're not called to be nice. We're called to be kind. We're called to be loving. And you can't, in good conscience, as Paul talks about in verse 19, call yourself a Christian if you allow someone to walk in apostasy or heresy and don't call them out. The result of that is if you have someone who is an elder in a church who has gone the route of apostasy and it is not addressed, the church will eventually fall into apostasy. We can look at churches in Colombia and point out specific churches that have gone into apostasy. We can pull up a Google search, look at random churches. First Baptist Church in Colombia went the route of apostasy. I mean, when we moved here, they had very specific signs out in, the, uh, out in their lawn. Parkades seemed to be going out into apostasy uh, when we visited a few times. And we all came from a church that was going the route of apostasy. It's a hard thing to say because you love the people within those churches. But if Christ can fall, call out false teachers, if Paul can call out apostates, if John can do it in Third John, then why are we forbidden to do it? Why is it forbidden for the modern Christian to call out false teachers and false churches? All of 1 John is about the Gnostic church that has slithered its way into the church receiving the epistle. John calls them out. We are, as is said in Habakkuk 2.9, we are standing on a watchtower. Back to a military reference. We have been commissioned to stand on that watchtower during wartime and watch for the enemy's approach. If you are standing watch and the enemy gets in, the entire kingdom is destroyed. Your home is destroyed because you've allowed false doctrine in. The church is destroyed because you've allowed false doctrine in. And worse yet, if you want to take it to a personal level, if you allow false doctrine into your church or into your home, your children can be led astray because you're not leading as a watchman. But Abakim says that men will lead in their families. 
one of two ways. Moms, this can apply to you as well. You will either lead in strength, in godliness, and efficiency, or you will lead in apathy and ungodliness. Either way, you're leading your family. So, Paul, in these three verses, is covering the courage to stand up to false teachers. The conviction and the confidence in the faith and the gospel. And the conviction to call out and excommunicate those false teachers. And excommunicate isn't a Catholic thing. It's a Christian thing. Paul calls for the man that was having an affair with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians to be excommunicated. Christ lined out in Matthew 18 an entire disciplinary action uh, chapter right there, 15 through 20. You go to somebody. You've sinned against me. If they repent, you've won them back. If they don't repent, you bring someone else. You bring someone else and you finally bring them in front of the church. And if they don't repent of their apostasy, of their sin, of their heresy, you cast them out. Now that's something, again, that the modern church really has a hard time doing. Back to the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. They have a fear of addressing sin within the church. And as a result, that sin grows. Christ compared it to a little yeast in a mixture. And being a baker, I know, you put a little yeast in, in some bread, leave it alone for a few hours, it infects everything. Good bread, bad church. But the Western church doesn't seem to want to accept that they have that painful responsibility and duty to perform if someone is er not only erring away from Scripture, but also driving the rest of the church with it. The church is at a crossroads right now. You have churches who claim to be Christians who will do anything to keep butts in the seat. I said butt. Peyton Jones calls it the never-ending cycle of consumerism within the church. Because more people equals more programs. More programs and more money. More programs and more money equals more people equals more programs and money, equals more people. If you have less people, you have less programs and less money. You don't have the ability to fund the church. You go from potentially having a large church with a thousand people in it over two services to potentially having to be bivocational. The church at some point, these churches have decided to take the route of pragmatism and allow anything. Most churches have become First Corinthian churches. They do not address sin. That's what Paul lines out here. They do not address false teaching, as Paul has been lining out. And they refuse to act for the kingdom. They fear 
man more than they fear God. My girls will tell you my favorite Bible verse is Galatians 1.10. I'm here to please God. I'm not here to please man. But man-pleasing, man-centered churches, even if they were started as Christian churches, have gone so far apostate, led by cowards, that there will be retribution and accountability at the end of days. <clears throat> and I use the phrase coward because it is used within Scripture, within Christ's ministry, when Christ is on the boat and the disciples are freaking out and they're waking Christ up. The polite translation is, why are you fearing? The correct translation from the Greek is, why are you being so cowardly? Don't you have any faith in me? That can be echoed to the churches today. Why are you being so cowardly in your actions and not addressing false teachers and not executing church discipline? Don't you have any faith in me? The answer is resoundingly no. They don't. There's a Barna survey done last year that showed that the bulk of the thousands of pastors surveyed, 70%, didn't believe in Scripture, did not believe in the sufficiency or inerrancy of Scripture, but they're preaching in large churches because they get money. They are fearful. And I, I bring this up. It's not a, it's not a tangent because First Timothy is a call for Timothy to be reassured and comforted but also be courageous in what he does. Because Revelation 21.8 is very clear. Now, the apostles, when they wrote, uh, wrote in a way that importance is usually listed by first. First thing is the most important on down. Revelation 21.8, first people listed going to hell cowards. Cowards are those who refuse to stand up for right teaching, refuse to address biblical error within their family, within their church, and within their community. Cowards are those who refuse to exercise church discipline, refuse to discipline their children in the way of the Lord, refuse to teach their children in the way of the Lord, refuse to teach their spouses in the way of the Lord, refuse to take the responsibility that God has given us as husbands and as wives, as parents and as shepherds, and just let things be because comfort is more attractive than the refining fires of God's trials. And Christ says, you people, the cowards, will be the first thrown into hell. I bring that up, and I bring up the military praising, because we were, for hundreds of years, known as a church militant. We were to break down, as Christ said, the gates of hell and storm the kingdom. Throughout Scripture, the terms and the analogies of military are in there. In Philippians and Philemon, we're called Christian soldiers. Second Timothy, which we will be getting to, chapter 2, Paul admonishes Timothy to suffer as a good soldier. In 1 Corinthians, Paul asks the question, does a soldier serve for free? No, we serve as reward. Obviously, we also have the armor of God analogy, which is not meant to be put on to take to the beach. Even in Ephesians 5, whenever God commanded that wives submit to your husbands, the Greek for submit is a military term 
or a subordinate officer taking orders from a superior officer. We are the church militant. And this is what's been bugging me about this as I was writing this last night. Is I could exegete as much as possible, but if I don't touch the fact that we are the church militant, we are not designed to sit outside the gates of hell and wait for somebody to ask us a, a question. We are, as Christ said, to knock in the gates of hell to expand the kingdom. We are to be on the move. We are to be constantly at war, both within ourselves. We cannot deny the fact that we fight our sinful nature every day, but also with the world outside. We are to, as the Great Commission says, go forth, make disciples in every nation. We start at our home and work out from there. We are to be watchmen. We are to execute the orders given to us by God to do less as James said, is a sin. James says, if you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, you have sinned. And I believe that verse very well fits in with the context of 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. It is a very reassuring and convicting set of verses as to what Timothy was facing with the apostasy and with his age. It's a stark look at the fact that Paul understood that he was getting ready to pass away, so he was giving everything he had to a man he considered his son. And it's a calling for us to constantly be on the watch, not just for our children and our churches and our communities, but also for ourselves to make sure we are not taking any false heresy in ourselves. And as a warning, as reference to Revelation, if we do not stand up, if we do not do what we are told, like Paul could put it, command you to do, we will be held accountable in the last days. And there will be no excuse. At the end of it all, if you've been taught doctrine and you abandon it, you have no reason in front of the ancient of days to claim ignorance. We will end today by reading out of Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Galatians 1.10 says, I'm not here to please man, I'm here to please God. If I'm here to please man, I do not please God. Keep these verses in your hearts during the week and understand we have a calling but we've got a God behind us and it's going to be tough and it's going to be rough, but it will be worth it.